The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. If you downloaded our notes from the website, you can read through that later. But I think a climax is in the teaching that Jesus gives in verses 24 through 28 of Matthew 16. At this point, Jesus has performed incredible miracles, feeding over 5,000, feeding over 4,000, exercising demons, healing people. His disciples kind of get it, kind of don't get it. The Jewish religious leaders are denouncing him, and the person, amazingly, who has great faith is a Canaanite woman. But now here at the end of chapter 16, Jesus explains what discipleship is. Lord willing, in upcoming weeks, I'll go back on some of the passages that precede this one. But I want to get to the climax of Jesus' argument today. And the title of today's sermon is Gaining the World but Losing Your Soul, which is the main point of Jesus' text here. Now today's passage, if we're honest, scares us. Few of Jesus' teachings have ever been more frightening. This week I was walking through the neighborhood around our church, and I walked by a car that was empty and I looked in. And the two front seats of the car had embroidered on their seats, follow your dreams. In today's passage, Jesus says, take up your cross, die to self, and follow me. I don't think there's a statement in the Bible that cuts as directly as Jesus' words here do against our cultural expectations. We fear what Jesus has to say here. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of the death of self-autonomy. In fact, we're afraid because there's something that we hold on to that we can't imagine losing. C.S. Lewis illustrated this very well in chapter 11 of his book, The Great Divorce. In that chapter, there's a man, he's he's a ghost, but he's a man-like figure. And on his shoulder, he has a red lizard, which symbolizes lust. And the man who has the lizard symbolizing lust, the lizard is whispering in his ear, you can't live without me. You could never make it through life without me. But then an angel comes to the man, promising that he will kill the lizard. The back and forth that the man and the angel have is extremely humorous, and I encourage you to read it. But in short, it sounds kind of like this. The angel says, can I kill the lizard? And the man says, well, maybe tomorrow. Can I kill the lizard? Well, nothing so drastic as that. I think I have it under control now. Can I kill the lizard? Well, you don't need to. He's asleep now. I'm sure it's not a problem anymore. Can I kill the the lizard? No. And it goes back and forth and back and forth until the man actually curses the angel and says, go on, get it over with. And the angel does. But at that moment, the man realizes this. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. At the end of chapter 11, the angel says this, Not even the best and noblest can go on into glory as it is now. And nothing, not even the lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again to new life if it will but submit to death. In this passage, Jesus calls us to die. But that death is actually the best news he could ever give us. Now, right now, you still might be thinking, But Josh, I'm sure I don't have a lizard. I just live for me. There's probably nothing that's in control of me or keeping me from knowing and loving God as I ought. Well, let's think on that for a moment. Do you live to be loved and respected by certain people? If you do, you have an approval lizard. 
Do you live to have a certain kind of quality of life or a certain level of pleasure? If so, you have a comfort lizard. Do you live so that people will be dependent on you so that you'll be needed? If so, you have a helping lizard. Do you live so that someone will protect you? If so, you have a dependence lizard. Do you live so that you can be free of responsibilities and be left alone? Then you have an independence lizard. Do you live so that you'll be very productive and get a lot done? Then you have a work lizard. Do you live so that people will be amazed at your accomplishments and so that you'll excel? Then you have an achievement lizard. Do you live because there's this one person that you couldn't live without? Then you have an individual person lizard. Do you live so that this certain group of people, maybe a professional group, will finally let you into their circle? Then you have what C.S. Lewis called an inner ring lizard. See, actually all of us, if we're honest, have some desire that's idolatrous. And that desire is the one that tends to control us. Many people live for power. They want to be seen as competent, and their greatest fear in life is to be humiliated. Many other people live for approval. They want to be accepted, and their greatest fear in life is rejection. Many other people live for comfort. Their greatest fear in life is stress. Many other people live for control. They want to know and handle circumstances in life, and their greatest fear is uncertainty. In reality... These are counterfeit gods. And like the Old Testament, we like our gods to be mute, so they can't tell us what to do. But in reality, these mute gods that we live for, that are no longer made out of wood and stone, but are now ideology in our culture, need to be killed. And that's why the best news Jesus can give us is in today's passage when he says, come and die. Now today's passage is very strong. There are sharp edges to it and I don't have the right to sand them. But my job is to say it as clearly as I can, because this scalpeling work is actually for our good. Here's how the grammar of the verses break down. And we're going to focus on just 24 through 28 today. Jesus only makes one assertion, and it's in verse 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the only assertion. He'll support that assertion through three paradoxes, and you don't need to be a Greek student to see these. Verse 25, 26, and 27 all begin with the word for in English. It's the Greek word gar. They are all explanations of the one assertion. So if you have a bulletin today or my notes, there's just one assertion. That's number one. And letters A, B, and C are explaining that assertion through three paradoxes. Let's look at God's word together now. Verse 24. Then... Jesus told his disciples. What's the then, therefore? After what? After what did he tell his disciples take up their cross? Well, our brother just read it. After Peter told him not to take up his cross. At that moment, Jesus said, No, Peter, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. So this is very important because Jesus is only asking us to do what he knows he must do, what in fact anyone must do, if they are in fact to have a relationship with God. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, notice this, he's speaking to his disciples, but he's speaking about discipleship, meaning he's speaking to absolutely anyone who would have a relationship with God. There are no exceptions at all. I've read some books where people try to argue that disciple is something different from Christian. 
And so the verses in today's passage are only for super-Christians. They're not for all Christians. Only a few Christians need to die to self. Did you know in Acts 11, verse 26, we read, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Jesus never used the word Christian. Jesus only used the word disciple. But then his disciples were called Christians. Do you know what Christian means? Little Christ. It was an incredible compliment. They were being told, you're so much like Jesus. This is our description for you. So so please don't miss this. What Jesus is going to say in these verses is the only way anyone has ever been saved, ever could be saved, or ever will be saved. No one who does not fulfill these verses has an actual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is for anyone. This is not the special forces, but the general military of the Lord's army. If anyone would come after me, and then he'll give three descriptions, let him deny himself, second, take up his cross, and third, follow me. Let's look at those in order. First, let him deny himself. Meaning, in a culture of self-autonomy, we must realize that we are not king. In a culture of living for my own dreams, we must realize and recognize that there is a King of Kings and there is a Lord of Lords and He is Jesus Christ. We are to come after Him in a lifelong commitment recognizing that we belong to God alone. Let me quote some preachers and teachers in church history. John MacArthur, in his excellent book, The Gospel According to Jesus, wrote this, Forsaking oneself for Christ's sake is not an optional step of discipleship subsequent to conversion. It is the sine qua non of saving faith. Martin Luther said it this way, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. George Mueller, that great prayer warrior, said it this way. There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, taste, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Or C.S. Lewis, who said it this way. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will never have a real self. The first thing Jesus says, deny yourself. But now the next phrase in verse 24, take up your cross. What does that mean? Have you ever heard someone say something like, well, we all have our own cross to bear. That is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying we all have our individual trials or our individual circumstances. No, he's saying that all Christians die to self and recognize that they are now Christ alone. When I was a child, my parents had a very interesting discipline method. <laughs> it was very effective. When I realized I was in trouble, my dad made me go and get the spanking spoon and bring it to him. Now let me tell you, when you go bring the weapon of your destruction <laughs> to the person who will administer your discipline, you die the moment you grab it. Because you know you're about to hand it to someone and you know what the outcome's going to be. Your heart has already submitted. Now, any first century Jew in Palestine living in the Roman Empire would know that when you take up your cross, the moment you put that on your shoulder, you're dead. You're dead to the world. The world's dead to you. It's condemned you. No matter how long it takes you to walk up that hill, you're going to be crucified. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's telling us, recognize that you have now died to the world 
But here's the good news. The next phrase is, and follow me. See, the beauty is that we don't just die to the world, but we now live in Christ. Paul said it well in Galatians 6.14 when he said, Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So verse 24 is the big assertion. Anyone, anyone who would come after Jesus has to deny self, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. One more quote. This one's long, but it's from Paul David Tripp. It's very good. If you're going to be an ambassador in the hands of God, the God of a glorious and powerful grace, you must die. You must die to your plans for your own life. You must die to your self-focused dreams of success. You must die to your demands for comfort and ease. You must die to your individual definition of the good life. You must die to your demands for pleasure, acclaim, prominence, and respect. You must die to your desire to be in control. You must die to your hope for independent righteousness. You die to your plans even for other people. You must die to your cravings for a certain lifestyle or that particular location. You must die to your own kingship. You must die to the pursuit of your glory in order to take up the cause of the glory of another. You must die to your control over your own time. You must die to your maintenance of your own reputation. You must die to you having the final answer and getting your own way. You must die to your unfaltering confidence in you. You must die. Have you noticed many people are willing to give up a specific habit or a specific routine but they're not willing to give up the right to determine what habit they give up or to determine what routine they give up. Jesus is saying we die to the very seat of control at the center of our soul. We die not to peripheral things that we fast on or that we take an absence from. We die to the right to be our own. And here's why. Because of three paradoxes. And the first one is letter A on your notes. The paradox of self-absorption versus self Abandonment. Look in verse 25. Here's our first four. Here's why we must die. Take up our cross and follow Him. Why? Because for whoever would save his life will lose it. The word would means desire or want. The word save means preserve or clutch. Whoever would clutch his life. Just one Greek thought real quick. The word life here, and it's also the word soul later in the passage, is the Greek word suke. There's two Greek words for life. One is suke and the other is bios. But suke means your inner self. We might say the real you, the eternal you. That's the, the one that you want to preserve and you want to hold on to. And Jesus says, if you try to hold on to the real and eternal inner you, you'll actually lose it. The word lose is very strong. It's the Greek word apolomui. You know where you've probably heard it before? John 3.16. For God so loved the world and He sent His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not, you know the next word is? Perish. That's the same word here. So the one who wants to hold his life will actually perish. His life will be in ruin. What he tried to clutch, he will actually destroy. Now verse 25 continues with the flip side. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The irony is, rather than self-absorption bringing you fulfillment, self-abandonment brings you fulfillment. When you die to self, you finally succeed to live. I want to share a quote with you that has stuck with me all week. 
by Henry Drummond. Here's the quote. The entrance fee for the kingdom of God is nothing. The annual subscription is everything. Think about that. The entrance fee for the kingdom of God is nothing. The annual subscription is everything. I'll put it in my own words. You can only come to God poor in spirit this way. Lord, I have nothing. And I demand nothing. Lord, I bring nothing. But I will obey anything. Lord, I offer nothing. But I will submit in everything. Why would anyone do that? Look in verse 25. We do that. Why? Jesus says, for my sake. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've seen at the altar when they say, I will forsake all others so that I can have the higher joy of loving you in a singular and expansive way. I actually think our sister just illustrated this for us very well in her testimony. She loves us, but she loves God more. Praise God. When you love God most, you do whatever He calls you to do. Now, this is so hard for us to think about today because we live in the most self-absorbed moment, perhaps, of cultural history. In America today, the cardinal crime is renouncing yourself. And the cardinal virtue is being true to yourself. So let me read to you one of the greatest Americans that I think ever lived. In 1722, Jonathan Edwards was 18 years old. And he started writing resolutions in that fall. Over the next six months, he finished. And so by the spring of 1723, Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old. Now at that age, Jonathan Edwards was already one of the brightest minds in American history. And he could have had any career, any job, in any position he wanted. Even today, secular people think of him as one of the best scientific minds and philosophical minds that America has ever produced. But here's what he wrote as a 19-year-old. This is resolution number 43. Resolved. Never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. Can you imagine that being said by a leader in America today, 300 years later? Today we tell our young people, live for yourself. Be true to yourself. Never let anyone tell you how to live. And then on the other hand, we tell them, and fight for justice and fight against hunger. How could they do things that cost such sacrifice if we're telling them to put themselves first? In a culture of self-absorption, Jesus tells us to live for self-abandonment. And if you're unsure of whether or not it's worth it, let me give you one other quote. Here's the end of the rainbow for self-absorption. Walter Lippmann, in his book, A Preface for Morals, said this, At the heart of man's self-absorption, he realizes there are moments of blank misgiving in which he finds that the civilization of which he is a part leaves a dusty taste in his mouth. He may be very busy with many things, but he discovers one day he's no longer sure they're worth doing. He's been much preoccupied, but he's no longer sure he knows why. He's become involved in an elaborate routine of pleasures, but they no longer seem to amuse him very much. He finds it hard to believe that doing one thing is better than doing nothing at all. And it occurs to him that it's a great deal of trouble to live and that even the best of lives, the thrills are few and far between. He begins more or less consciously to seek satisfaction, but he's no longer satisfied. And all the while he realizes that the pursuit of happiness was always a most unhappy quest. This is the reality 
of self-absorption. So it is in grace that Jesus says, whoever would keep his life will lose it, but whoever will lose it for my sake will find it. So that was the first paradox, but now the second is the paradox of this world's evanescence versus your soul's eternality. Look in verse 26. Jesus will ask two rhetorical questions with an obvious implied answer of nothing. Here's the first one. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What if you owned Apple and Amazon and Microsoft and Google? What if you owned the economies for North America and Europe and China? What if, to put it more reasonably, you were the peak of your profession? What if you were the most attractive human in the world? What if you were the most well-liked? What if you spent your whole life avoiding serious sickness and you peacefully died in your sleep? What if all of your kids married well, achieved great careers, and produced adorable grandchildren? What if your endeavors never failed and you experienced unparalleled success? What if you went everywhere you wanted to go in life, when you wanted to go, and stay as long as you wanted to? What if you did all those things but never had Jesus? Would you make that bargain? This is why the verse concludes, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Some of you have a translation that says exchange. It's a commercial term. Would you make that bargain? The reason, honestly, we're afraid to die is because one of those questions might actually explain a desire that we think we could never live without. If this didn't happen, I couldn't trust Jesus. But remember, friends, this is not self-denial for the sake of self-denial. This is self-denial so that we can have Christ. That's why verse 25 says, for my sake. That's why Jim Elliott, the wonderful missionary, said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. I love the story of missionaries that were on a boat to Africa. And the captain told the missionaries, you're going to Africa? Why? You're just going to die there? And they told the captain, captain, We died before we got on the boat. (laughs) See, the reality of the gospel is until you're willing to realize that Christ is superior, you can't realize that everything else is inferior. If you won't abandon self, you'll stay self-absorbed. But let me point out one other thought. When I was first studying this passage, I thought, well, Jesus must only be talking about life after death, that it's a trade-off for after death versus now. But actually, the the grammar doesn't allow that because he uses some present tenses to explain it's not only that you lose your soul eternally, you do also in one very real sense lose your soul now. Alistair Begg told a story about a wealthy UK developer named Jordan Redland. After his death, he was cremated. And then he instructed that his ashes be turned into egg timers and one was given to his accountant and the other was given to the equivalent of an IRS agent in the UK. (laughs) What Jordan Redland said was, one day I suddenly realized that I'd worked hard all my life only to hand over my cash to the bank and to the tax man. So when I kick the bucket, I may as well go on working for them. (laughs) See, the reality is not only do you lose your soul eternally, you lose it now. Perhaps you've heard the the song by Ray Stevens called Mr. Businessman. Here are the lyrics of the song. Spending counterfeit incentive, wasting precious time in health, placing value on the worthless, disregarding priceless wealth. You can wheel and deal with the best of them, steal it from the rest of them. 
86 anesthetic crutches prop you to the top where the smiles are all synthetic and the ulcers never stop. When they take that final inventory, yours will be the same sad story everywhere. No one really care. No one more lonely than this rich, important man. Let's have your autograph. Endorse your epitaph. Did you see your children growing up today? Did you hear the music of their laughter? As they set about to play, did you catch the fragrance of those roses in your garden? Did the morning sunlight warm your soul, brighten up your day? Do you qualify to be alive, or is the limit of your senses only to survive? Hey, you better take care of business, Mr. Businessman. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and come after me. And the first paradox is self-absorption versus self-abandonment. The second paradox is the world's fleeting nature versus your soul's eternality. But now the final paradox is agony and glory. This is verses 27 through 28. I think this one's the most complex, so may the Lord help me to say it as clearly as I can. Look in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Do you get the paradox of agony and glory there? So often, when people thought of Jesus in His day, they thought He was insignificant and unimportant. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He has come in the form of a servant, in the likeness of men. He was marred beyond human semblance. Surely this man is not important, but look at how He looks when He comes back. These are His angels. This is the glory of His Father that He is now seen in. See, in a culture that we tend to confuse what is glorious with what is agonist, Jesus explains where true glory is found. Furthermore, in our culture, we tend to think that some people are living a glorious life, not realizing that they will be assessed by Jesus and then they will inherit only agony. So look at the end of verse 27. When Jesus comes with His angels, He will repay each person according to what He has done. If your translation says deeds, it's a little misleading because it's a collective singular. It means the sum of his life in relationship to God. Jesus will repay everyone according to the sum of our life in relationship to God. And many people that lived in seeming earthly glory will inherit eternal agony. And many people that thought life was challenging will find eternal glory. Self-absorption only leads to eternal ruin and agony. Self-abandonment paradoxically leads to eternal glory. But the last flip of glory and agony I think is the most confusing, but I think the most wonderful. Look in verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does that mean? How could some of His disciples not die before Jesus comes into his kingdom. How is that possible? Scholars are all over the map because this is such a difficult verse. Some argue, well, it must be the transfiguration because 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter talks about the glory that he saw when he was on the mountain. Other people think it's the sending of the Spirit in Pentecost in Acts 2. Other people think it's when the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Other people that I read think Jesus just got it wrong. We know that option is not valid. (laughs) I don't think it's actually any of those four options. I think the option that's actually the right option, the reason we don't think of it, is because we still think of agony like secular people 
and we don't see the glory that Jesus is trying to tell us about. What's going on in the context? What's the debate? Where does Jesus say he has to go? And his disciples say, you can't go there. Where does Jesus say everybody has to go if they're going to follow him? Where is the place where the Son of Man will break into his kingdom? The cross. See, it's the place where defeat is expected that victory is achieved. That is where the Son of Man breaks into his kingdom, and we can't even see it because we're so used to thinking of agony and glory through secular terms. See, Satan tried to keep Jesus from the cross because at least Satan knew enough to know. This is where it is. See, what kingdom glory will the disciples see? They'll see that the cross gives picture to the crown, that the death gives window to the resurrection. I think you and I actually kind of know this. Think of all the hymns you know that glory in the cross. Near the cross, near the cross, be my glory ever. O sacred head, now wounded. Have you ever heard someone say how odd it is that we have crosses? I've heard people say, well, you don't carry a guillotine on a necklace. You don't have a mushroom cloud on your arm. You don't have an electric chair hanging from your church. You're right. That's because we don't love death for death's sake. We love the cross because death died there forever. The cross is the place where glory emerges from agony. That's why verse 28, they will see the Son of Man break into the kingdom when ironically he hangs on a cross. Did you know that's the exact place where everybody thought Jesus had lost? If we were to keep going today and we went to Matthew 27, here's what we would read in Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by Jesus derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. Do you know why you should believe in him? Because he didn't come down from the cross. Because he gave himself so that we could have life. Because he denied himself and took up his cross. That's what makes him our king. So look again in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Are you ready to do that? Don't live for self-absorption. Abandon yourself and finally have life. Don't live for this world and lose your soul. Don't confuse agony and glory. Remember, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, I thank you that Jesus would not come off the cross 
until He had finished paying for our sin. And I pray that we would die to self so that we can have true life. And when we are tempted to think that there is life outside of Jesus, help us to see that as death and ruin and enable us to lose our life so that we can finally save it. And then use us for your glory. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.